But if you're a guest with us today, as Allison mentioned, first time with us, you're here at a great time as we start a new series. We're going to be looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation to which our Lord wrote specific letters to them. They were real live churches that existed back in the first century. And they were real life people who lived in those churches. They sought to live the way God wanted them to live. They sought to, to deal with compromise and integrity in the midst of the culture in which they lived. Each of these churches serves as a lesson for us uh, as we hear Jesus address each one of them because of something that was going on in the life of the church. He pointed out what they were doing right, what they were doing well, and then he would also point out what they were not doing right. And he talked to them about their opportunities and what they needed to do. I think as we go through this series entitled The Church God Desires, that's what your, your life group lessons are, are entitled, that we look at these seven churches and we will learn more about what Jesus wants from his church today uh, and how we have to live in this challenging culture in which we live today. So as we go through these seven churches, I think we're going to be dealing with that basic issue of what, what does it mean to be the church today? How do, we, how do we take these lessons that we'll hear from these ancient churches that were real churches now in, in what was, is now a modern-day Turkey and, and apply those lessons to our life here at Spring Valley today? Well, uh, I believe that, the, that Christ is, is giving the call to the churches today to wake up, to come back to him, and that there's a need for a sense of revival in our land. Because there has to be a spiritual movement if we're going to be healed. I'm going to go back to, to, to the Old Testament great passage that we want to quote. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and, and then I will, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. It starts with God's people. You can't expect unchristians. You can't expect politicians. You can't expect government leaders to lead us into a sense of revival. That has to come from the church, from the people of God. And we have to be the people who live the way that God wants us to live. So we're going to see uh, in this book of Revelation how Christ talks to each one of these churches and about how he wants them to live. And, and the reason for it is, is so that the kingdom of God will continue to be advanced. Uh, John, of course, John the Revelator is the, is the author of this, the inspiration of Jesus. And this is what he says uh, in John 1. And he says in verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now those were the seven churches that were there that, that were pretty much the, the mainstream of the churches of that day. They're in, in, in what's now modern-day Turkey, ancient Asia Minor. So what did Jesus say? Well, what was, he, what was he talking to this church at Ephesus about? Well, let's get a little bit of background about the church at Ephesus. Ephesus uh, was located in, in such a spot that it bore the name, the Light of Asia. That was a pretty prominent name. Ephesus was one of the most prominent cities in that day. Ephesus was a city of great commercial importance. It was located at the mouth of a river and, and one of the great seaports of the ancient world. Also, there were three roads in Roman, in Roman history that converged there at, at Ephesus, and it was a great trade center for the people who were carrying their wares with them. It was also a political city. It was a city of political importance. It was known as what was called a free city. 
Uh, Rome had granted to it the right of self-government. And at that time, Ephesus was one of the few cities where justice was dispensed. From time to time, the Roman governor would come and and try certain cases. And so that meant that there was a large political gatherings in Ephesus as well. And Ephesus was also known as being a, a great city of religious importance. Not so much in terms of Christianity, but because... One of the seven marvels of the ancient world, wonders of the ancient world was there, and that was the temple of Diana, which was a pagan worship. And, and so we find that the church was birthed in the preaching ministry of Paul on a second, perhaps second missionary journey. And, and that Ephesus was a hotbed for all sorts of false religions and cults and superstitions. All kinds of people passed through the city gates. She was one of the most wealthy cities in, in Asia Minor. But she was also one of the most wicked cities. She was a wealthy, cultured, but corrupt community. That sounds kind of like where we live today, doesn't it? A wealthy, cultured, but corrupt community. But it was here in the city of Ephesus that God planted a church. Paul spent about three years on his second missionary journey establishing uh, the church and strengthening that church. Both Timmy, Timothy and Apollos also ministered there. And also we, we are told that John the Apostle who wrote this later served at, at Ephesus and died and was buried there. So some of the great writings and teachings out of the first letter to Ephesus, which was the book of Ephesians, we find some more work about the church, some more words to the church that come from that. I love to go through the book of Ephesians because it talks to us so much about about how we've been called, how we've been saved, how salvation has been provided. Then we hear so much about how the church is to live, how the church is to operate, how the church is to function, and how we're to go about making disciples with each part playing its role in that ministry of discipleship in the life of the church. So we're going to follow a pattern when we look at these seven churches as to how Jesus saw them, how he addressed them, and what he challenged them to do. So let's look first at the Lord of the church. In verse 1, we see that through the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We see Jesus as the triumphant Christ. He's Lord of the church and he's Lord of the lampstands. And we see that he is relating to his church in two ways. First, he is holding the seven stars. The word translated means messengers, and we think that that literally means then the messengers of each church, which would be the pastors. And so the Lord is holding these seven pastors in his hand. He's protecting them. That is a a hold on them. That is an authoritative hold, according to the Greek language. It's one that indicates to hold to the entirety of an object in one's hand. So that is that Christ was holding these pastors snugly, securely, and and he was safely holding them in his hands. But it also tells us that he's walking among his churches. And that reminds us of his presence uh, in the church. As he ministers to his church and loves his church, he ministers to them in all ways necessary. He is Lord of the church. And we must never forget that. We might not see him today, but he is here. He is here because where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. The Lord is here with us as we gather and worship. And so the Lord is here walking through us and he sees us. He knows us. 
He knows whether we're excited about being here or not or whether we came with a, with being drugged in a church. He knows our heart. He knows what's going on. He knows the life of the church. And that's the second thing that we look at. He points out to each one of these churches what he knows about the life of that church. And being the Lord God, sovereign God in the flesh, he knows everything about it. So we look at the life of the church. Jesus, the Lord of the church, knew the life of the church, both the positive and the negative. When, when, when John uses that word know, it means absolute, clear vision. Well, what are the positive things going on? Well, verses 2 through 4, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then he goes on to say uh, in verse 6, he says, he said, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what does Jesus see about this church? First of all, he sees that they're active and they're energetic. He talks about their deeds. They had many activities. They were a busy people. I call this Ephesus was the busy church. You know, sometimes we think, and I think this has been the, one of the big problems that we've had, issues that we've had in the life of Southern Baptist churches is that we think we need to keep our people busy, so busy all the time that they don't have time to sin. And, and, and we, you know, we, we've had meetings after meetings and worship after worship and project after project and all these kinds of things. And, and some of that we found during the pandemic we could live without and grow spiritually through other means. You know, sometimes we're just too busy. I think Ephesus was a church that was just absolutely too busy. They had hard work. He called it their toil. There was a word for labor. You know, I'm reminded of the lady that was asked if she wanted to join the Baptist church she'd been visiting. She said, I'd love to, but she said, I just don't know if I've got the energy to do it or not. And then I like the little joke that says, Mary had a little lamb and might have become a sheep. Instead, it joined a Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. So <laughs> Ephesus was a busy church. We equate busyness with goodness and, and, and effectiveness, right? We keep everybody busy and everybody's happy. And that's not necessarily true. Jesus said you're busy. And, and also that he talked about their perseverance and their endurance, their triumphant fortitude. And he talked about their spiritual discernment, that they looked into those who claimed to be apostles and teachers but who were not, who were false teachers, then he points out to them also in verse 6 that they hated the Nicolaitans that he hated. There's sometimes there's speculation about who were these Nicolaitans. Uh, basically, it's it a group of people who uh, exercised spiritual liberty to the extreme. They really came out of the Gnostic mindset that said what they did in the body did not harm the spirit. And so they practiced that religious liberty. They'd do whatever they wanted to. Drunkenness, carousing, maybe going to the, temp the temple for pagan worship and, and the worship of prostitutes in the temple. And they would say, that's fine, I can do that because it doesn't affect my spirit. I think we have that culture running through our society today as well and through our churches. We need to be reminded of the fact that there are things that God approves of and things that he does not approve of. So that's what then we'll get to the negative thing. What does he say negatively about them? What do you remember about this church? Look at verse 4. He says, but I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. They were a busy church. And in their busyness, they had forsaken their first love. 
Now, through the years, there's been speculation about what was this first love. There are those who've argued that it was love for Christ. There are others who said, well, it was their love for each other. And some have said it was a love for evangelism. They lost their love for evangelism, winning souls for the kingdom of God. Well, I want to suggest to you that the first love that they lost was that fresh, passionate love for Christ. Allison challenged you to think about when you were baptized, how excited you were. Hopefully you were excited about that. Do you still carry that sense of excitement about that life you live in Christ with you today? You see, so that's what Jesus is saying to these churches. They had lost their passionate love for him. That was also maybe an issue that that Paul recognized very early on or, or that he knew would be a challenge to this church in Ephesus because in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul wrote these words. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So when Paul was establishing this church and writing to them to strengthen them as this church, he was reminding them about their need to be rooted and grounded in love. And he's talking about that first love that they had with him. That wonder of the relationship with Christ. That God would send Christ into the world. God in the flesh. And that Jesus as God in the flesh would show us how to live. Show us what God is like. Show us the love of God. And then he revealed the heart of God when he went to the cross and he died there, letting himself be lifted up as a sacrifice in our place for all of our sins. I mean, that is the love of God and the heart of God on display in Christ. And so Paul, the founding father of this church, is saying to Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, you need to go back and claim that first love that you had with him. You need to claim that first love and rekindle that love. You've lost that first love that you had with Christ. So I think that the the first love that they had lost in their business was their love for Christ. But I also want to go a little bit deeper and say to you that if we have grown out of a relationship with God and Christ, then we've grown out of fellowship with each other and we've lost our concern for evangelism. A while ago when Allison was asking you, you how many of you are excited about being here today? How many are excited about the baptism? How many of you shared the gospel this week? There wasn't a whole groundswell of support about that, that you did that, you know? I think it's not because we don't want to. I think it's because we get busy and we get distracted about that. You know, we just spent the last month of May going through for five weeks talking about how to share your faith in Christ. We've reminded you of who's your one, the one person that you know who's far from God that you need to pray for and then minister to and share the plan of salvation. I just wonder how many of you have done that at any point in time in the life of the church in this past year when we've encouraged you that when 3.6 million South Carolina Baptists are lost or unchurched, you've got to know at least one who's far from God who needs to be saved through the power of God's grace. And so we're, we're reminding you of that. So when we fall out of that first love with Christ, Then we fall out of our relationship with each other and our concern for evangelism. And what are the warning signs for that? Well, let me give you three. Number one, 
Labor replaces love. See, the church at Ephesus was so busy, they lost their first love. We think the busier we are, the better we're going to serve God, and that's not necessarily true. We just become busier doing more and more, staying busy, developing more programs, and we drift farther and farther from Christ, and we end up having program on top of program without any power. The second warning sign is that the test of faith replaces fellowship. Now, this was early in Christianity, and it's about 40 years old. Church is about 40 years old. It's the second second, um, generation of leadership in the life of this church. But they were still concerned about orthodoxy and of teachers and apostles being true to the gospel. And we always need to do that. We always need to make sure of that. Our leaders, our teachers, we need to make sure that, that we are following strictly to the word of God and adhering to the teaching of God. And that, that we're teaching what is true and nothing that is false. And so they check those things out. But the problem was then... And I think I'm seeing a little bit of that in the Southern Baptist Convention as we're preparing for a convention uh, starting next, uh, next week. Uh, and uh, I, I see a little bit of this where it's a, it's a problem of where some people are saying, you know, I, I, I believe stronger than you do. I have a faith that's greater than your faith. And somebody will say, no, 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 my faith is greater than yours. And so we're going back and forth and back and forth like that. That's not fellowship. That's not fun. You know, that's pointing the finger. That's prejudging. And so the test of fellowship, test of faith, replaces fellowship. And the third warning sign is that arrogance and apathy replace evangelism. Arrogance and apathy replace evangelism. When you lose the first love for Christ, you don't care about lost people. When you lose your first love for Christ... You don't care about lost people. You don't share the gospel. You don't look for opportunities. You're too busy. This is a major concern for us as staff as we think about what are we going to do moving towards the fall. You know, we've reopened everything today. We're going to go through the summer this way. Hopefully that means that the virus is under control, stays down, it's gone, whatever you want to say. We don't know what the fall holds, but we're going to start planning for that. But we're asking the question, what does it need to look like? We don't want to go back to where we're just layering thing after thing, event and event and event on event on top of, top of everything else. That doesn't make disciples. Any more than that table right there can be made a disciple. And it stays in here 24-7. So we're looking to see how can we simplify things and yet get a, bit, a bigger bang for our efforts for that. And that's going to be a challenge for us about doing that and for your buying into that. So Jesus was warning the church at Ephesus that they had lost their first love. And because of that, several other things had happened in, in that process. So what do we see him doing? What, how does he finish this to the church? Well, what we, we do that as we listen to the lessons for the church. Oh, Vance Havner. A uh, uh, evangelist from another generation once said, the church needs to take time out to tune up. And that's what we need to do. So we need to listen to what Jesus says are the lessons for the church. He calls us back to that first love. He calls us back to be his people. First of all, he says, remember. He says, remember. 
the height from which you have fallen. You see, when you come to know Christ, that's a spiritual high. You recognize that Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross for your sins, that your sins could be forgiven, and that your sins are forgiven, you're washed clean, you're in relationship with God, you've got eternal life promised, you've got glory in, the, in, in heaven waiting for you for all eternity. Man, it doesn't get any better than that. But Jesus says when you've lost your first love, you've got to remember from where you've fallen. Go back to that first love and claim that. Go back in that first love and claim that with Christ. You've got to constantly remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Then the second thing he says is repent and do the things you did at first. Repent means to turn away from the sin of idolatry and from the sin of apathy. And from the sin of judgmentalism and whatever sins might be going through your life that's keeping you so busy. And you've got to repent of that and return to that close relationship with Christ that you had when that was, faith was brand new. You see, all the way through the scriptures, especially in Paul's writing, he talks about the, the wonderful relationship that the church exhibits towards the relationship of Christ and the church and the bride and with the bridegroom. And we always have to put that image in our mind. So look at verse 7. What does Jesus say? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What, what is he saying in these last words? What's he promising to them? Well, you've got to go back up and look at another one, uh, another verse, uh, where he talks about the fact that if you do not repent, I will take come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. We identified the, the, the stars or, or, or the pastors of the church, the lampstands, that's the church. And Christ is holding both of them. What does he mean when he says, if you don't repent and you don't come back, I'll come and I'll, take, I'll remove your lampstand. Does that mean we lose our salvation? We cease to exist as a church? We go away? No, not really. But what it means is we lose our influence. We lose our passion for Christ. As the church, we lose our influence in the community. Don't you see that happening? If you're not passionate for Christ, you're going to lose your influence. The church is going to be known for nothing except for being busy. And we need to be known as the people of God. And so that's what God is saying there through Christ here in the letter to the church. Repent. And then the good news is, he said, I'm going to give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? It wasn't the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it was the tree of life. And God had said, you can eat from that, just don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what he's saying is that ever since that time that Adam and Eve were run out of the Garden of Eden, and the two cherubim were posted there to keep anybody from coming back in, he said, there's going to be a time coming. And the glories of heaven where you're going to eat from that tree of life. You're going to be nourished from that tree of life. And boy, when you get over in Revelation 20 and 21 and you read that, how wonderful and glorious it is. How we're going to be fed from that. But it's a promise to us that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You won't lose your salvation. You can't do that. You won't lose your influence. You can do that if you come back, though, to Christ and repent. And remember, you won't lose your influence. And the result of all of that is then, you rejoice in the glories of heaven. And you are fed from that wonderful heavenly tree, the tree of life. And you live for eternity. 
And God is pleased with you. And you enjoy that fellowship for all eternity with Christ. You see, I think God has a special message and concern for our churches today. I think this is so timely for us as we're looking at the life of our church and the culture in which we live today. And we need to remember, we need to repent, we need to return and do the things we did at first. Ephesus was a busy church. It could have been First Baptist Church of Columbia. It could have been First Methodist Church. It could have been First Pentecostal Church. It could have been Spring Valley Baptist Church. But instead it was a church at Ephesus. And the church at Spring Valley today needs to learn from the church at Ephesus. So let's pray. Father, we know you're serious about your church. We live in a day that shows us the need for the true church of Jesus Christ. We need to be a light in darkness. We need to be love in a world of hate. Thank you, Lord, that you model this life for us. And as we love you first, you'll help us be everything that you desire us to be, showing and sharing the message of hope and new life. Father, in your love, help us to take this letter to the church at Ephesus to heart so that you can use us as a light in this world that is getting increasingly darker day by day. Lord, may we cease our busyness and return to the glory of our first love with you. And Father, if there's anyone here today who's not in that relationship with you, who does not know that joy of that first love, that he or she come today and just simply say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, save me of my sins. I repent of my sins, I confess my sins, and I ask you to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. Father, help us to be challenged by these letters to these churches written so many years ago that are so pertinent to our life today. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.